I'm not a child. I'm a grown-ass woman. I just make childlike mistakes. <laughs> Sometimes. Hysteria, a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. I'm Steph Van Schilt. And I'm Ronnie Sullivan. And in this episode, we were lucky enough to be joined by writer, performer and comedian Jess Knight. Jess has spoken and performed at the Emerging Writers Festival and Red Dirt Poetry Festival, and her writing has been published by Mianjin and Scum Mag. She's a 2018 recipient of a Creative Victoria grant, which will help fund her one-woman show, Mormon Girl, about growing up Mormon and how she disentangled herself from that belief system to become the unapologetic feminist she is today. Jess recently won the November Moth Story Slam, where she told a five-minute version of her Mormon Girl show. So obviously she can talk, so we were super excited to have her in the studio. And today we ended up discussing the Mormon faith, one-woman shows, and losing your virginity. So just a little content warning for our listeners, there are some heavy topics with religion and sex being discussed, but we hope you enjoy. We started off by asking Jess how she first found her creative spark. So right now, you yeah. describe yourself as a writer, performer, and comedian, but you've got a psychology degree. Yes. Explain this to me. That? Yeah. I'm not actually sure. Like, I wanted to be a psychologist, but it took was going to take too much schooling, and, and studying when you don't have money is, like, really hard. So I did the psych degree, and then I'm like, oh, I'll do a grad dip in education because I'll make money that way. So I did that instead, and then became a teacher. Do you teach now? No. <laughs> so how long were you a teacher for? I was a teacher for a few years, an emergency teacher. Yeah. Yep. The money was good. But then I got super sick and couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Fun fact, I got super ill and then applied for disability finally after my ingrained ableism. I got better at ignoring it and being feeling less ashamed and I applied and I got it. Turns out so bad that Centrelink actually agreed to give me money. You're the one. I'm that one person. <laughs> that actually looked so bad on paper they were like give this bitch some money that's when I started pursuing the creative stuff because I had a tiny little bit of income and time that I didn't have to spend working and that would take up all my energy because the thing they don't tell you about being chronically ill and stuff is that it's one or the other if you're having to survive financially by working you don't actually have time to be creative I didn't that's why like in my 20s I was just teaching and discovering that I had depression and stuff like that like I didn't really know that I was in a city of literature because my days were like filled with just stuff that wasn't fun how did you feel when you first started doing the creative stuff like was it immediately Um, fulfilling yes Mm. yeah yeah like once I started going for it and like pursuing it without even having any dreams or hopes that it would get me where I am now I was just you know, saying yes to things, just taking it as it came and kind of hoping for the best, if that makes sense. I was basically just grateful for any scrap of, like, anything that that came my way. Like, I started writing poetry on Facebook, for God's sake, while I was waiting for my kidney transplant, and that led to me getting an arts grant to make my first poetry book. Like, I, I never thought that that would happen. As in... It- 
gave you the... I was volunteering at an art gallery, mm-hmm. West Space, because I couldn't work because kidney disease makes you really sick. And it also did not allow me to write long form anymore, which is also super scary because your mind gets all fuddled because your blood's all dirty and you're really sick and stuff. So I was just doing a poem a day, literally just on Facebook for funsies, just to get something out. So I was doing that. And then after a couple of weeks of doing that, I showed up to the art gallery that I was volunteering at because I was friends with some of them on Facebook. These were people that were nice, but they weren't like my friend friends. So they didn't have any reason to lie to me to save my feelings. (laughs) So when I showed up and they were like, your poems are really great. You should, you know, you should apply for one of these arts grants we're giving out. And so I did and I got it. This was like 2014. So it was a while ago. And that was basically how things got started. I got that. I made a zine. I got money to make this scene. What was the zine about? It was about being sick and, like, boys that treated me badly. Mm. Um, It was called Tongue Between Teeth. There are none left. I've got one, actually. Oh, my God, really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about then this year. It's about being ill and a lot of poems about a guy that I guess you could call him a (laughs) fuckboy. Classic archetype. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was both emotionally cleansing but also kind of driven by – the physical elements that yeah. you were going through. Yeah, yeah, the two are like very, very much connected. So you do zines and you've done poetry and you're a performer and you're a comedian and something popped up on my Facebook the other day that you're doing something with a local art collective called And Also and it's like a poster project called Witches of Brunswick, yeah. which sounds really yeah. cool. And I was yes. like, I, I want to know more about that. What is this? <laughs> and Also Presents is in Brunswick mm-hmm. um, and it's this lovely organisation that actually gave me a room to write in for three months this year. Like I think it was May, June, July, if I remember correctly, and I got to go into this room every day and um, work on the play for the Mold House. And I did that and that was really great. And then, yeah, again, they asked me to do just provide an artwork or something for this thing and they just pasted it up on the the wall, the brick wall, like public art kind of thing. And so me and my zine collaborator, Miranda Costa, who is an excellent illustrator, we just provided one of the pages from another one of my zine called Red and White Cells. And so my poem and her illustration for that poem was a paste up that's on the wall. That's so cool. How did you, so you've got a collaborator, an -hmm. illustrator. How did that relationship start? It is such a cute story. I'm shaking my hands with excitement. (laughs) We became friends like a few years ago, but Miranda has the best story. She's like, she used to live in Flemington and I used to live in Flemington with my first boyfriend. And she remembers after we became friends and stuff and started collaborating, she told me the story about how she would see me around all the time and would be like, that girl is always wearing such cool punk clothes and I really want to be friends with her. But, you know, how years you later. you friends with a stranger who you just admire from You just afar. admire from afar. And then um, we met through mutual friends at parties and stuff. And then, yeah, she's like, I'm an illustrator and we should make zines together. I love your poems. And she's very talented. And so I basically just get to make stuff with a friend. She loved me from afar That's for like so ages. Cute. And I asked her, Oh, do you remember my boyfriend? And she's like, I don't remember him. <laughs> You're like, like me either. <laughs> I have a theory about those people, especially in kind of these small Melbourne area. I don't know what it's like in other states or other countries, but I know that I used to kind of see people from afar a lot and call them extras in my life. So you know how like when you used yes. to watch TV shows and there'd be people in the background that were like the constant extras? Yes. I actually became friends with a couple of mine too in not similar way. And it was weird. And then got drunk at a party and was like, you were an extra in my life. And now I 
kind of regret that conversation. I loved it, but I'm a bit narcissistic. <laughs> but you're the you're the one that's being like viewed. I'm the weird stalker oh, in this yeah. scenario. Yeah, that's not sad to call you. your collaborator that's a weird stalker. Much. It's worked for out sure, well. It for just you worked guys. out really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's beautiful. <laughs> it's quite lovely. Yeah. Can you tell us about zines as well as a medium? Because I feel like they're so. That's such a great DIY kind of punk ethos that fits so well with yeah. your like fashion sense and your approach. And I just I'm really interested in that medium as something that you gravitate towards and what you put out in zine form. Oh, I want to no, I, I want to be published by Penguin. <laughs> Don't <I> just like <laughs> just show me the money. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have been so honest. But no, zines are awesome. I actually did a thing at the National Young Writers Festival uh, last year, I think it was, before I got too old to participate, and they asked me to be part of a debate that um, self-publishing is punk rock for and against, and I was for. And yeah, and I I wrote this thing about like why it is punk rock and how it is actually legitimate and like an actual good thing to do. And I mean. We have Sticky. So many few cities in Australia have a place like Sticky Institute where you can go make your zines, put them there, and they look after it, and it's run by, you know, volunteers. And, yeah, it's very, very lovely. And so many good comic book artists and people are lovingly making things to share with everybody. I know that you were talking about, like, the DIY aesthetic, but you're also doing quite professional stuff now. Oh, yes. Yeah, how's that going? <laughs> Firstly, congratulations on your recent grant. It's so exciting Recipient. to be given money. <laughs> Full for, stop, like, but also creative. But like, <laughs> for creative stuff, because as I said earlier, I didn't think that that would ever be a thing. Mm. You know, when you're writing in journals, living on a farm, going to hospital, and your whole life is either church, the farm, or hospital, the only reprieve I actually ever had was writing in my journal where I could truly be who, who I wanted to be and stuff and, like, shut everything else out. That was my escape. And to think that... I've been doing it for as long as I have and now people are like, no, you're actually kind of okay at this. Like, we we like what you're doing and you, it has value. That's a little bit awe-inspiring. Did you? I mean, I don't. it doesn't mean I have to stop taking my antidepressants, but mm. it still makes me really happy. And so, Jess, who's your grant through and tell us a little bit about what it's for. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so it's through Creative Victoria and I had some lovely people helping me out and pushing me. I would not apply for things if it weren't for people who actually were like, you should do it. I'm one of Why? those annoying people. Why? I know. I don't know. I'm just like, A, it might be the punk rock thing. And I'm like, I don't need to ask permission. Mm. I'm not going to suck up to someone just to like, there's that. Mm. Also, they're really hard to do and you need to sell yourself. And I don't feel like I'm good at that. But these lovely people like Mark Pritchard and Fury. Um, I don't know if you know Fury. Yeah, well, one They're of my amazing. one of my biggest champions. Yeah. Like they literally were the one that was like sending me these things and saying you should do this and like you know giving some very mm. concrete feedback and helping me so much. So I I wouldn't actually have gotten these grants without people like that. I think that's beautiful advice in general because I think a lot of people do feel unsure about applying for grants. Like that landscape is so foreign mm-hmm. and so intimidating, formal and official. If you have people in your corner. Life, like yeah. professionally or personally or socially who can sort of help guide you through and just give you that push. Once you start, it's yeah. never as scary as it feels no. on the outside. And then, you know, you get rejected, you get rejected and you feel crappy and then something happens. You're like, oh, people aren't full of shit when they say it's a numbers game. Mm. 
that's actually not a lie. It's a yeah. It is hard though. Like very I was much that. talking about this with a couple of writer friends recently, and the idea of self worth being tied up with rejection, mm. like that is tough. You've talked about, or you've touched on the fact that you're taking antidepressants, for mm. why, and mental health kind yeah. of issues. How much of yourself now that you're like, this is my career. Yeah. I'm pursuing this creative path. Yeah. yeah. How much of your identity is now caught up with that? Do you think? It's um. Uh, a lot. Yeah. A lot of it now. Yeah. I'm like grasping at it like a, yeah, you'll have to pry that identity out of my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> You're like, this is me. Hello world, this is me. <laughs> but you know, it's still, it's an uncomfortable dress that I wear sometimes. Sometimes I feel like it fits really well and I'm like, oh, I feel so beautiful. And then other times it like itches a little bit or um, it's like snags on something and you're like, quiet, hater. Or something to that extent, yeah. So, Jess, can you tell us about the project that you're working on with your grant? There's a lot of things that I could talk about in a One Woman show, and I'm finding that that's going to be difficult focusing it in. But what I want to focus on mostly in Mormon Girl is the weird way that I lost my virginity, which is the five-minute story that won the moth because I kind of crystallized it and made it a short, snappy thing. But... It's a bigger story than like just that five minutes of like hilarity. A huge thing that took a long time to fix and a long time to deal with because I was, you know, you try losing your virginity when you're a normal girl is hard enough. Losing your virginity when you've been indoctrinated into a religion from birth that says that having sex before marriage is akin to murder, then you're in a little bit of a you're in a bit of a pickle and it's not just a pickle it's a guilt-ridden saturated shame pickle and so you know if you try to lose your virginity because you're a grown woman you've made the decisive decision that you're ready to do so you've extricated yourself from as much of the religion as you can at that point even though there's a lot of issues around it and you know stuff like that but when you're trying and then something goes wrong or you're told something about you is sexually dysfunctional, you immediately are like, oh, well, obviously God is having a laugh and this is all my fault because I'm a dirty whore trying to lose my virginity before I'm married and I'm making this decision knowing full well that it's akin to murder, that you are disappointing God, that you were raised born into a religion, which means that the rules are different for you. So say like... Other people who weren't born into the religion that I was born into, you guys are fine. Like, because you didn't have the honour of being born into it, you can make mistakes and do stuff and you're going to be all right because God's going to be like, it's okay, you didn't know any better. I, on the other hand, because I was raised in the religion and I do know better and I have done these things anyway, that means that the punishment will be greater if it's all true which I obviously don't believe it is. That's so heavy, though. But, yeah, so knowing that and then you still make those decisions, you're in a, you're in a bit of a trouble. The man upstairs is going to be disappointed. You just said, obviously, I don't follow No, I don't follow it, but that, but that kind of stuff runs deep, no. like super deep. Definitely. Um. Is it deciding to take that incredibly personal oh, experience yeah. and turn that into something that you want to share with the world? As a method of entertainment, like take us through that process and how you're approaching it. I was ready. I feel that I'm ready to do it now, but it's going to upset people. It's already started to upset people in my life and I'm, 
I can't do anything about that. And it, it sucks. But obviously <laughs> but, you know that this is your creative path, right? That's your life. identity. I can't live my life for people who who are living their lives, but I'm the one that has to make myself a certain way to fit in and that upsets me and that's where a lot of my anger comes from is that, and I know a lot of minorities feel this way, they're the ones that are always put the onus on them. We, humanity and society puts the onus on us and them to fit into the structure that doesn't actually give a crap about them. Not really, not deep down. You have to make the effort to fit in. You have to walk on eggshells around able-bodied people, white people, rich people, religious, well, my religion. I'm not going to talk about other religions. I want to make that like super clear. Other religions are their thing. I can only talk about my experiences with my one and that's where all my rage is. I mean, religion in general, I'm not a huge fan of for obvious reasons, but the only one I know what it's like to grow up in and be walked by is is the Mormon church. That's that's my only area of expertise. I'm not super religious at all. I was born into like Church of England. My um, granddad was a salvo. Yeah. He said grace at Christmas. We did Christmas. It's yeah. neither here nor there. And now I'm well for like four or five years I've been mm. dating a Jewish guy, so I've learned some of that cultural association, yeah. but it's doesn't hasn't informed my identity hugely. How about you, Ronnie? Uh yeah, look my my dad's family uh you know, nothing like mm. atheist and my mum's family are Jewish, but more culturally. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea of internalizing particular codes of behavior as, um, as virtuous or necessary mm. has never been something that I've experienced. Yeah. So Me know, either. it's, it's kind of incredible to mm. hear how deeply embedded that is for you, Jess, because mm. it's completely foreign to me and yeah. Jeff as well. Yeah. yeah. And it's horrible because obviously my parents believe it and they were doing the best that they could. They weren't they weren't being malicious. Like they're not being malicious by raising me in this religion. They believed it was true. They it made them happy so they raised their kids that way and that's all great. But and I'm the oldest of five and I'm I don't think any of them are as upset by it as I am. But I am the one that is the one that very obviously didn't fit into the mould of a proper daughter of Heavenly Father, someone who was going to be able to get married and have kids. Mormon guys don't have a lot of imagination in what they think is attractive. You know, they want demure girls or like a regular attractive, not a girl with a disability or a girl who's sick all the time or a girl who can't have kids, which is me, obviously. Like, I can't have children. And I found out when I was 17. And I remember all of my Mormon relatives and stuff, like, crying and thinking it was the end of the world. And, like, no one no one said to me, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. You can do other stuff. Yeah. That's not, again, your identity. No. Is in the Mormon church. Yeah. They have songs about growing up to be a mum. yeah yeah yeah. that must have been so tough like i can't it's like the songs that i'm thinking of of the book of mormon well yeah i and they are so far removed from like (laughs) oh my gosh that's so funny yeah no oh and don't get me started about the book of mormon great musical but no women might i add because all the missionaries are men obviously usually and yeah, like no girls get a look in, which is basically the church. So they were they were accurate. <laughs> they fact checked it. But <laughs> yeah, it's like it was just it's very accurate in in that respect. But um, but it's also yeah. that's an American musical. Yeah. That's it's a 
predominantly known as an American yeah. faith, like an American religion. I am still, I'm still amazed that it came here. I was reading that, like, there's not a huge amount of Mormon people in Australia. Politically, they're becoming more influential. I've seen it as well, and it's like, like, seriously, no, they do not respect women's autonomy. It would be... Well, that doesn't sound like the political climate right now at all, does it? I mean, I know it's no different to, like, anything else, but, like, they... Oh, it doesn't mean it's okay. Like, like it's just... They don't believe in abortion. Mm. They don't believe in, well, you know, yet women having choice and things like that. They don't believe in the joys of masturbation. Like, A, you can't get pregnant from that, and B, you can't spread diseases, and it's fun and free. I just feel like it's just a nod to their capitalist agenda. Because as the Book of Mormon, the musical shows, the Mormon church is pretty much selling the idea of American exceptionalism. They're exceptional. And I don't know if you look into it, a lot of the people who are presidents of the church are quite wealthy people who have a lot of, um, yeah, financial backing and things like that. It's, uh, yeah. What a coincidence. Yeah. So you grew up in a smallish yeah, like super tiny. I grew up on a farm that was an hour north of Bendigo, which is where the church, that's where the church was, the Mormon church was. Yeah, and so you'd try and get there every Sunday. My dad was a farmer. We lived on a farm. It was difficult. And the Mormon church isn't just a Sunday, one hour a week thing. The church is like a huge commitment. It's not just Sunday. It's like you've once you like uh, hit puberty and you're a teenager, you've got young women's and young men's. Um, you've got all these things you have to do because these this is your community and they keep you on the straight and narrow. So it's important that you stay in contact with them a lot. Like it's a so l- that the world doesn't get you. Yeah, your life is shaped by it, right? <laughs> and you escaped. Yeah, I did, and it's um it's upset some people. <laughs> yeah, I can't, cannot. Sorry, I was just like, no, it's a lot. That yeah. is a lot. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 sad. Because I want to be me and I want to do the things that I'm proud of. And the thing with the church is that you're raised very much to respect your parents and live in respect for them. And so I've realized that I can't do, I can't do both. I can't keep everybody happy on one side and still fulfill my dreams on the other. Mm. It, it, it had to be an either or for me, unfortunately which is a a problem. So it's like, you know, I got the arts grant, but I can't really ring up my parents and say, I got an arts grant and I'm going to do a show about growing up Mormon. Like it's it's not something that I think that they will get excited about. If I rang them and said I was engaged, that would, they'd be pretty excited about that. That to me doesn't necessarily even sound like a Mormon thing. I'm pretty sure my family, oh, I know, like, exactly, you know? Right? Yeah, like. yeah. It's very common for women who are doing things outside of the, the norm of like, yeah, heteronormative monogamy. It's like. I've got news. You're pre- No. No. You're engaged. No. 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 no but my you bought a house. Career. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I'll never own a house. But my creative career is really I got $3,000. <laughs> But it's great. Like, you need to be proud of those things. And, like, you have to feel that confidence and know that there is a place for that work out there. Mm. There's a place for your voice. It's really important because you were saying it was such a struggle for you growing up in those. I was miserable on the farm. Like, yeah, miserable. Imagine another little girl Mm. growing up, feeling miserable, and then hearing you talk, for instance, on this podcast, knowing that there is 
chance out there for different yes. things. Yeah. And I guess like that kind of feeds into uh, in your like bio, it says that you kind of investigate the idea of normalcy and what is normal in your work. Oh, did you want I, to talk about I, that a little bit? I didn't know that I did, but apparently it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and normal, I mean, my goodness sake, like a lot of people would consider a Mormon upbringing not normal. So like for me, the normal was actually pretty unusual <laughs> at the best of times. Like for me, the normal was going to church and, you know, when I was growing up, I was literally, my plan was to meet a guy, get married at 18, have my first child by the time I was 21. Then when I was 17, I realized I couldn't have kids. And in a way, I think I really dodged a bullet because that was one of the starting off points of me having to reevaluate. Oh, that and never being told I was pretty. That's how I also realized that amongst the church and stuff, I was like, oh, if I'm not going to be pretty, maybe I'm just going to be that weird smart person, which I already was. I just had to embrace it realigning what normal is or yeah. what, the ba- what the boundaries are of mm-hmm. acceptable behaviour. Which is right why, way. yeah, which is why I think it's actually kind of crappy for girls to be told they're pretty all the time. You know what I mean? Like if that's, if, if you're pretty or you're a girl and being pretty is very important in our society for girls and it is something that, you know, people say to their, their kids or, you know, relatives will say it to their nieces or their grandkids, you know, you're so beautiful. But they won't say that kind of stuff to the, to the boys. The boys will get more specific compliments that are a little bit more broader and got more room to move. Or you're so strong. Or you're, yeah, you're so, you're so tough. Yeah, brave, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, you know, I was told I was brave, but it was because I was in hospital all the time and, like, stuff like that, and I, I didn't feel brave, but I guess I was brave, and that kind of stuff does make you tough. Being in hospital from a young age does make you tough. Getting hormone injections to make you bigger when you're seven years old makes you tough, apparently, even though I did try to, like, sneak to bed some nights to skip the needle. I'm like, oh, my parents are really busy. I'll just like sneak to bed and I won't have to get the needle. And then I would hear my dad come up the hall and go, Jess, where are you? Have you gone to bed again? I'm like, why do they have to love me so much? <laughs> they just want to give me a needle to help me grow. Long story short, they did not help me grow. I mean, and you're like, yeah, Jess, we get it. You're short. <laughs> you can see that the needles didn't work. Wait, so that means in hindsight, like, yeah, they love me and they gave me these needles, but goddamn those needles. They, they didn't did- do anything. They just made my spine twisted and I needed spinal surgery, which I would have needed anyway, but it's a long story. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. But yes. in happier kind of happenings, happier happenings, that's not a really good segue. I like it. <laughs> to talk about some kind of cheerier things that make you happy. Sisteria shout out. It's time for the Sisteria shout out where we ask our guests to recommend a piece of art, some TV, film, books by a woman or a non-binary creative that you think the listeners might be interested in. So what do you have for us, Jeff? Okay, so in keeping with the theme, there is a song by an Australian songwriter, Stevie Jean, called Hell in Every Religion. She won like Unearthed, yeah, and I became friends with her at Red Dirt Poetry Festival in Northern Territory that I went to um, a few months ago and met her and I've seen her perform in, I mean, a song called Hell in Every Religion, of course I'm going to love it. <laughs> and she's only 19 or something and she wrote this song and she's already so much more fierce and feminist and 
enlightened than I ever was at that age and I just love that so there's that song you should all check it out it's amazing and then there's a tv show by a black British woman who is amazing called Michaela Cole and the show is Chewing Gum and it is about a girl that lives in commission flats of London is a virgin trying to lose her virginity also going out with a horrible boy that she's known for years who treats her like crap and he's super religious and it's just it's just beautiful like it's it's just hilarious she's awkward she's strange she's as naive as I was at 24 I too had no idea like what I was doing and there's a scene where she does something quite embarrassing and she's like I'm not a child I'm a grown-ass woman I just make childlike mistakes <laughs> sometimes and yeah it's just that's so a motto to live by right yeah she's amazing and she also did a lecture a metagot lecture or something where she talks about her life growing up in commission flats and the very scary sounding british high school she went to and stuff like that but i love that like her sort of not obviously i'm not a woman of color so that's not how i can relate to her but the religious stuff and the not coming from like heaps amount of money and being really naive and stuff through no fault of her own her mum is like super religious quite evangelical yeah and she has a sister cynthia who's like super weird and is hilarious as well but just the way that that show came also from a one woman show that michaela Cole did and it became this two-season Netflix show. And, like, obviously I don't want to jump the gun or anything, but I find that that's really inspiring. And I love that because it just ties in and is such good inspiration for my own one-woman show that I'm working on about Mormon Girl, which will be about, you know, I'm also going to be writing about losing my virginity and um, in a super weird way, a long, drawn-out way. And also, you know, at that age, like losing virginity in your mid-twenties, it does seem like it's late. You feel like it's kind of a late way to do it. Most people lose their virginity, you know, a, a lot earlier. I have siblings who are younger than me who lost their virginity before I did. Full disclosure. So when your teenage sister calls you up and is like, I've lost my virginity and you're 24 and she's just assumed that you've had sex and you're like, yeah, yeah, cool. Was it your decision? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. You felt ready? Okay. You made all the, you know, the, you took all the proper precautions. You're not going to get pregnant. Like, I know all this stuff. You don't need to have had sex to make sure that your sister's okay. But it did make me like go out and start to try a lot harder to have sex. <laughs> I love it. I do want to quickly ask about, so talking on your shout out for Chewing Gum, which is an excellent program, (laughs) I was interested in the idea of a one woman show and what what made you decide to follow that format? Like obviously Fleabag was recently, that was one woman as well and that was incredible as well. Um, There seems to be kind of this trend. Is that like partially empowerment? You want it to be like the solo thing? It's only your perspective? What drove you to kind of follow that path during the emerging writers festival i was asked to take part in a thing called um small and loud at uh, a room at the art center and it was called a scratch night so i was invited and three other people who were writing things for performance were invited to give a crack um, at their work in progress to an audience and then afterwards the audience would give feedback so the audience were going to this event knowing and understanding that they were going to have to give heartfelt kind inclusive criticism to these artists and you know it was a really great evening so I was going to 
to some of the play that I was working on about being in hospital after my kidney transplant and I died and stuff. I was working on a play about that. On the afternoon of the event, I changed my mind and decided that I was going to talk about Mormon Girl instead. And so that afternoon, I wrote a thing that was, I don't know how long, a few thousand words, and I, I just it just burst out of me and I did that. And then I went to the scratch night and I'm like, I'm going to do this. It's a scratch night. They want something rough. They'll get something rough. It'll be fine. And then it got to my turn and I did it. But I realized halfway through reading from my phone, I'm like, I can't do this reading this thing. I'd, I'd internalized it basically. And I told it to the best of my ability, just from the gut. And the response was amazing. And that was the start of Mormon Girl. That was basically the beginning of Mormon Girl. Sat down afterwards, got the feedback and... The thing that was great was that everyone was like, we felt so safe with you, you were funny, it was not just funny, but it was sad, and you were vulnerable at the same time, and it was really brilliant, and we actually wanted more. Now, I thought you only had to be up there for 20 minutes, so I was worried that I'd been up there too long, but everyone had said that when I stopped, they were sad and they wanted more, and when I asked how long I'd been up there, they said, oh, you're up there for 45 minutes. <laughs> just like, what? And they're like, you have a show. And so that's, yeah. Like, wow. You've got to show, like, you, you, you'll be able to do that. And that's, that's how, incredible. That's how Mom and Girl was born. Well, all of that feedback that you got from those people is exactly the feedback I would give you for joining us on your episode today. Oh, it was wonderful. It was smart and sad and brilliant. And I want it to go on forever, but unfortunately we have time restrictions with these things. Yes. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank we really, you. really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. This has been an honour. I'm so happy to have been here. Thank you. Sisteria, created by women and for anyone who wants to listen. Sisteria is supported by City of Melbourne in partnership with the Melbourne Library Service. Sisteria is produced by Stephanie Van Schilt and me, Jessica Lucchiano. For links to everything we've discussed, check out our website, sisteriapodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at SisteriaPod. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you love what we do, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes too. Our amazing theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and is available on her latest album, Spacings. Sisteria is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. We hope you tune in again soon.